So once again, welcome everyone. Uh, really such a delight to, to see all of you. It feels like it's been a while, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. And tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections, some particular reflex reflections. Uh, you know, as of recent, I've, I've been trying to become curious of what it would have been like to be a practitioner and you could say the early days, the beginning of this tradition of Buddhism. And one of the reasons I like to imagine that is that, you know, I'm culturally situated in a particular way, and I have kind of probably habitual ways that I, that I perceive the world and even interact with others. And also the way that I hold my own practice can be informed by kind of my cultural background in a way that I'm not always aware of. And sometimes when I become curious about practitioners, from a different era, it opens up these other things. It expands my, my sense of what it means to practice. And that's really what I wanna share with you, some reflections about that tonight by, by looking back in time and then carrying forward some of the, the, the spirit or what, what, a, what might've been in the hearts of those practitioners of so long ago. And in particular, what I became interested in was that you know, you could say in the early days, a significant part of the path and practice of the Dharma for early practitioners was the preservation and transmission of the teachings of the Buddha. And of course, this was mostly and most likely monastics who were doing this. For example, for the first 500 years after the Buddha died, the teachings were transmitted orally. And so what this meant was that was that practitioners, monastics, were one memorizing the teachings and then reciting them and chanting them. You could say even singing them. And then what would happen is then the next generation would hear these teachings, memorize them, and continue the tradition. So this was generations of practitioners that were offering the teachings through actually multiple languages. It used to be thought that it was just one language that, that the, the Buddha Dharma was being transmitted in but multiple languages, because also it's uh, thought that the Buddha was teaching in at least multiple dialects, if not multiple languages during his time. And it, it, it harkens back to one definition that you find of mindfulness in the early suttas. You know, so often we think of mindfulness being uh, this activity of being in the present moment in all these, these ways that we explore together in meditation. But another way that the Buddha talks about mindfulness is it's this act of remembering what was said and done long ago, which I find interesting. It interweaves this, these, these kind of these primary ways of practicing. And then after those 500 years, this preservation continued. And it just continued in the sense of it started to be written down. But even then, there was a whole process to it. So, you know, there's, at least it's believed that the kind of the collection of teachings in Pali, the early scriptural language, began being collected in what is now Sri Lanka. And what they were doing is they would take these palm leaves, these Ola palm leaves, and I think they would dry them out and cure them in a way so that, so that, that then they could etch in a certain script, it was probably a script similar to Sinhalese, uh, the teachings. And then once they were etched with a knife, they would stain them 
and then wiped them off so that the, the etchings were preserved just a little bit more. Yet it was thought that the, the, the ola leaves, these uh, palm leaves, wouldn't last very long because of the, the climate of Sri Lanka. So then it'd have to be repeated again. I mean, one, one idea is that they'd maybe be preserved for maybe six months or a year, maybe a couple of years. And then all the teachings would have to be etched again. So I want to point out, this was like a practice that was right alongside meditating and ethical conduct and the practice of generosity and compassion and kindness. And when I was taking this in, I, I was thinking, you know, what would have been the incl inclination in such a practitioner's heart that was doing this? How would it inform their notion of what it means to practice the Dharma with this practice of transmission, whether it be orally or etching it into these, these palm leaves? And that's where I want to begin, is I invite you to get a sense of what that would have been like to be such a practitioner, to imagine the spirit of that, the impulse of that behind such a practice. What would that feel like to have that as a significant part of your path and practice alongside these other practices that we explore here on Monday nights, like meditation, the practice of generosity or compassion or kindness? And for me, when I slow down with that, I, I, I can feel how practice and this path felt primarily to be an offering in an offering with a particular flavor to it. As such a practitioner, I'm making an offering to a vast multitude of future generations of practitioners. And that that would be in my heart every day as I'm practicing, especially if I'm chanting these things or reciting or remembering or etching. I have the sense of future practitioners. And not only that, to make such an offering I'm going to have in my heart the memory of like, oh, and all these practitioners before me have given me these teachings in this practice. Can you feel from this perspective of how practice, how this path is something so much vaster than my own little life? It's intertwined with both the distant past and in service of future generations. And now to take the next step, what would it be like for you? What would that be like as a practitioner now to practice generosity or to practice compassion the way you might do during your day or kindness with this vaster sense? Or when you get up in the morning to have your time meditating in the morning intertwined and having that time intertwined with such a broad and immense sense of what it feels and what it means to practice, right? This stepping into this vast web, something so much larger than just me. Yeah. That feeling that, that I, I imagine must have been there in those hearts. It also reminds me of a, a feeling in a different context, which I think is related in, in at least in, in a small way. It, it reminds me of the feeling I get when I'm out in the woods or in the forest. It really does. 
was just out in the woods with my partner for a while in the wilderness area in Colorado. And I'm, I'm sure some of you have experienced this when you're out in the woods. Like when I'm out in the forests, humanness is no longer at the center of experience. A part of it, but not the center. Right? For example, when I'm in a city, so much of the environment centers human beings. There's roads, there's buildings, there's even bike paths and streetlights, and they're for just one particular species, human beings. They're centered. Whereas in the forest, here I am in this environment, and I feel myself situated just as a part of a whole vast web of living beings. A, a part of something so much vaster and then being inter intertwined with that vastness. Maybe some of you can relate to this. You ever have that feeling when you're in the forest? So, so powerful. And I feel part of Dharma practice is to feel this whole vastness, this vastness of beings, beings touched by the Dharma, both in the past and in the future. And I'm a part of something so much bigger. And, and it fits because it uh, with, with some of the wisdom of this path, because it, it allows, it's like, it, it's helpful in allowing this narrow and confined sense of myself to, to thin out, to evaporate a bit. And then I get to step into the immensity of the Dharma. So if this resonates for you, I, I think that the next question is, is what can allow you to sense into and be informed by this vaster sensibility of what it feels like to practice the Dharma that's connected with past generations and future generations, not just me, something bigger. And there's one poignant example that I love because it, it brings a kind of imagery that helps remind me in a felt sense of what I'm talking about. And you could say it's an example that, that happened around 2000 years ago. And this happened in an area called Gandhara. And Gandhara is, uh, is now the general area of Eastern Afghanistan and Northwest pa Pakistan. And during that time, 2000 years ago, there was a group of practitioners who had etched certain early Buddhist texts in birch bark scrolls, and then they placed them into these clay vessels, or you can say clay pots. And then, and it's in some ways, this is so miraculous. And then these clay pots were discovered in, around 1994 in an antiquities market in Peshawar. It's like, you know, here are these people walking around this market and they see these clay pots. They're like, whoa, what's up with that? And then they discover in them these birch bark scrolls that had these ancient Buddhist um, suttas on them. And these scrolls have not only helped revolutionize you could say scholarly understandings of Buddhism, but have given historical context for some practitioners that have supported a much more pluralistic understanding and approach to this practice. 
here, here are these such fragile clay pots with even more fragile birch bark etchings in them. This transmission of these teachings. And I, I think I, I love the story because it, it, uh, when I imagine those practitioners in those birch bark scrolls, in those clay pots, it evokes a certain question in my heart, which is, what do I want to offer to this world for, for the future generations? What's the message in the bottle I want to send along? Even if it's a fragile and ephemeral message, like the birch bark protected by the fragility of a clay pot. What is that? And what is it for you? What do you want to offer to this world for future generations that's informed by past generations? Even if it's small, what could that be? Maybe it's another night of offering your child a safe place to sleep tonight. Or maybe a meal to a friend or a family member. Maybe it's letting someone merge when you're in the traffic jam. Or it's the willingness to have the courage to speak out about the injustices that still plague our society, the various forms of oppression, the willingness to act. Or maybe it's something different, like keeping silent when you know your words are just going to make the situation worse. Or maybe it's slowing down on your walk next time to actually make eye contact and connect with the person who appears to be living on the streets. What will you put into that vessel for the future? And yeah, fully knowing it's so fragile and ephemeral, so small maybe in some ways, and knowing that most of those messages will get lost and disintegrate before reaching the heart of another. And yet still there's something significant about engaging in such a, 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 an act. So I invite you to get a sense of that. What would it feel like to engage in the Dharma every day with this kind of spirit? Because if, if you're like me, this is not the first way I came to the Dharma. The first way I came to the Dharma is uh, uh, probably multiple reasons is one is you know, I was, I was curious about the different kind of ways of being in the world, the different ways of perceiving the world. And also because life was difficult, I was having a hard time. And practice was all about my life. And I want to point out there's nothing wrong with that. But there might be something more in addition, not as a way of sidestepping that, but broadening that. And I think this is important also just because of how mindfulness in our modern times can get situated. For example, this path and practice often can get reduced to that one practice of mindfulness. 
when it's much broader than that. There's the practice of generosity, of compassion, of kindness, times for reflection and recollection. And then even mindfulness practice gets reduced, where it's seen as something only to address your anxiety, depression, or the worry in your mind. And then meditation just becomes a part of a daily regimen with the goal of being healthy, right? You get some exercise, brush your teeth, don't forget to floss, eat your vegetables, and meditate. And then you know what, then you have a healthy body and mind. Isn't that great? And, and I want to be clear, don't get me wrong. I am so down for doing all these things in my daily life. I brush my teeth. It's really good. I like eating vegetables and I try to make sure I get exercise every day and meditate every day. I'm down for it. So I, I want to point out, this is wonderful stuff. I sincerely mean that. And yet, if this is all there is to my life, for me, that's quite narrow. And I ask you that question, is that a worthwhile life? You're born, you struggle with a mind that worries, you meditate to reduce those worries, and then you die. Is that all there is to life? It's like you're born, you brush your teeth so you don't get cavities, and then you die. Both are good, but is there something more to the picture? It feels different, don't you think? At least it does for me when I engage in something so small and fragile and ephemeral like meditating in the morning. Maybe I'm meditating to reduce anxiety, but I'm doing it in a way to, to offer something to future generations because I've received something from ge past generations. It's so much vaster. It's the same act, but my heart holds it in such a deeper way. Can you feel that? I think it makes a difference for our dharma practice when it has this sense of offering to it. It's important to remember that even the insight meditation tradition came from this spirit. For example, many people feel that kind of these, this particular way of meditating that's been inherited that we practice here at Flagstaff Insight Meditation Community, it really gained momentum you could say at least the spirit of it in the, the late 19th century, the, the late 1800s. And during that time, there was this huge surge of uh, lay practitioners, people like you and me that are not monastics, beginning to engage in meditation and to engage in ethical conduct and these other aspects of the path in a much broader way and deeper way. There was study and going on retreats. And practitioners were getting involved in, and much more involved in these aspects of Buddhist practice in places like Burma and what is now Sri Lanka. And yet the spirit was different than many modern practitioners in the sense of what, what created the surge was there was a worry, there was a concern 
of how colonization was demolishing their culture and their practice of Buddhism. It was a way of fighting colonization. When I practice, it allows Buddhism to survive for future generations so that I can honor past generations of practitioners who have given this to me over the years. And there was a, a, such a deep spirit around that. And I want to acknowledge as a side note, you know, the, during this time, Buddhism's relationship to uh, colonization and colonized ways of thinking is it's complicated and complex. Yet it's the, the spirit that I want to point out is, is when I'm connected with future generations and past generations, it makes a big difference of what it feels like to practice. Again, what would that be like to make meditation and other aspects of this practice? To feel like an offering, like etching into birch bark the teachings of the Dharma, placing them into a fragile clay pot. Yeah, fragile, ephemeral, yet it's worthwhile. And I think it's an important question that I know I've asked already, but what do you want to put in that vessel for the future every day? And I mean this even on the days when you feel like, at least for me at times, where your life feels like a complete disaster. On the days where you feel financial, the financial stresses of your life, or maybe there are challenges with friends or family or colleagues maybe struggling with the disappointments that might come from your job or from looking for a job. And I think the question in that context is, what's the small thing that can be salvaged even in the wreckage? What's the small thing that can be salvaged in the wreckage that's worthy of placing into some fragile clay pot that might touch another heart. And I love this for myself because it situates practice as an offering. And I feel like there's power to that. Often spiritual practice is framed as, I don't know, I don't know the right phrase, maybe something like I practice get my act together, right? <laughs> I feel like I don't really have my act together, so I'm going to practice the Dharma. And that can take on many different forms. I, I, I practice so that, that I can become a kind person. I mean, these are good things. Don't get me wrong. To become a more mindful person, a more compassionate person. And I think on the surface, there's a place for that, but, but our hearts can hold those aspirations unskillfully. It can just be a setup for more suffering. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Like I start to feel like there's some momentum in my spiritual practice. I have more mindfulness. I feel like I'm more kind, more compassionate, feeling good about myself. And then you have that day where like you say that crappy thing or you're not mindful at all, or there's no kindness. And then you feel like, damn it, you know, I can't do this practice. I suck at this. And then kind of climb up the ladder again, practice, feel good about being a practitioner, bad day. Ah, oh, I suck at this. Do, do, are you here in the cycle? But good, bad, good, bad. 
Sometimes when I feel good, I feel worse because I feel like I could, should be there more. There's a, there's a term that the Buddha uses for this dynamic, uh, bhavatandha. It's the craving for becoming, to become somebody in this way. And our hearts are holding it unskillfully. Yet when Dharma practice is simply about making an offering, it's like, for me, it cuts right through all that. It sidesteps that whole framework. Because that framework I just shared with you is still framed around me. But when I'm making an offering, yeah, it's about me, and it's about something much more than me. It holds both of those. It's not like I'm denying myself and denying that I have problems that I want to address, but it broadens it, and it's simpler. In the morning, I make an offering. I meditate. I say some kind words to someone in the mid-morning. That's an offering. I don't say the unkind words to the next person. That's an offering. And then when the afternoon goes poorly, it's okay. I still have a chance to make an offering in the evening. It's so much simpler than needing to become somebody. I'm just giving. I'm offering what's been received from past generations and giving it to future generations. And it's helpful for me. One of the reasons I like this image is it's helpful for me to remember that these offerings are fragile and ephemeral. They're, they're like the birch bark etchings in the clay pot. You make an offering and the other being may not know even the language you're conveying it in. They can't decipher it. And it reminds me the most important thing is is not the outcome that's important, but rather the act of offering again and again. And yes, of course, there are dimensions to this. I think it's important to refine, at least for myself, my offerings, to learn the language of others. And I mean that figuratively and literally, to be skillful in what I offer. There's another dimension of this for me, and, and that's, you could say, the, the bodily aspect of it, of how it feels for me when this kind of framework starts to kind of take hold in my practice, those moments where I can get a feeling sense of it, where it deeply lands in my body. And in those moments or those times, it feels like this body is simply, it's, it's like this doorway through which the Dharma is flowing. It's like, here I am, I'm opening to these teachings that we're exploring, for example, here on Monday nights. I'm practicing them. I'm exploring them. And from that, they have this chance to flow through the particularities of this heart and body. And then from that, they have the potential to just be these small, fragile offerings for future generations. It can be so small, those offerings. It can be a moment of care and support for the spider trapped in the tub or the kindness to myself when I'm having a hard time or a moment of pausing with my breath or simply sending 
a text, a text filled with words of love to a friend about the friend we just lost in an accident. It's in these simple ways that I etch the Dharma onto the birch bark and put it into the clay pot for future generations. And it's a wild bodily feeling because when I'm such a doorway where the Dharma is moving through, it feels like there's so much less of me. You know what I'm talking about? It's like I disappear. And at the same time, it feels like there's so much more of me. It's like, oh, wow, now I'm embodying the Dharma. There's more of me. How, how will you be the doorway for the Dharma to flow through? To be so much less of yourself, to get out of the way, and to be so much more of yourself. There's this, this poly word. I think some of you know, I, I get obsessed sometimes with poly words. Sometimes they capture so much. <laughs> They're so fascinating. There's one word. It's an interesting word. It's uh, uh, Tathagata. And it's, it's the name that the Buddha uses to refer to himself. So, so when the Buddha speaks about himself, most of the time he calls himself the Tathagata. Other people call him different things. Sometimes it's from his father's lineage, the Sakyan, or from his mother's lineage, uh, Gotama, the Buddha. But when he refers to himself, it's Tathagata. And, and because of how polygrammer works, there, there seems to be an intentional dual meaning in the name he gives to himself. And as a side note, I, I want to you know, I'm, I'm simply offering you kind of the, the poetic sense of the word that really resonates for me. And I do want to acknowledge there is so much written about just this one word and different theories and ideas of what it means. But this one meaning is something that I, I find really compelling in this context. So in one reading, this one that I find compelling from my heart, Tathagata means the one who is fully gone the one who has fully disappeared, or very simply, thus gone. Tata, thus gone. Gata is, comes from the verb gachami, uh, to go. So it's the one thus gone. And another reading, because of how the grammar works, it could also be tata agata, because the, 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 the A gets scrunched in the way the grammar works, which means the one who has fully arrived, thus come. So can you be the doorway for the Dharma to flow through by getting out of the way, to be the one who has fully disappeared, thus gone? And at the same time, in some strange way, to be the doorway for the Dharma to flow through by being the one who has fully arrived. Thus come. This way of kind of honoring past generations by practicing and then allowing it to flow through the future generations. It's like I get a taste, the fullness of the sense of Tathagata. And as it says in the discourses, 
The Tathagata is immeasurable, hard to fathom. And not only immeasurable and hard to fathom, but as the Buddha likens it to it, this other phrase, Dhammakaya, the sense of the body of the Dharma itself. These moments where we can embody the Dharma. And again, I, I want to be clear, for me, this isn't about perfection. It's rather about moments of offering again and again. This offering as this conduit of the Dharma. So may these reflections and, and may our practice tonight together offer these gifts given to us from past generations that you know we have embodied in our own ways and may they be offered to future generations of living beings to come. Thank you, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.